Feel like you've got a lot on your plate, or maybe you've got so much going on it couldn't possibly fit on just one plate. You've got a lot of plates, fully loaded, spinning at full speed. Well, you're not alone, and you've come to the right place. I'm Liz Cerati. Welcome to Seven Plates Spinning, a podcast serving up ideas and inspiration for keeping all those plates in the air. Today, we're talking about something very important, an essential life skill for a busy woman, you might say. It's an essential life skill for this woman, at least. We're talking about champagne, ladies. Specifically, we're talking about how to choose, properly open, and enjoy a bottle of champagne. Turns out, this may come as no shock to you. Women and champagne, we have a long history together. I'd say during the 18th century, and that's when champagne started being bubbly. It was the courtesans at Versailles that became the first champagne ambassadors. It was a novelty wine, and it was the women who were like, ooh, I like this. That's Cynthia Coutu. Coutu? I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, is it Coutu? Uh, that's close enough, yeah. Uh, let me hear you say it. Coutu. Uh, Coutu. Okay, well, that's Cynthia. She's a champagne educator and guide, originally from Canada, but living in Paris for the past 30 years. She founded a champagne club for women called Delectable. Okay, there's another word I butchered, but I'm trying. I'm not a French speaker. However, I do love champagne, so we're going to soldier on here. Cynthia's club is a networking club for women where... Bonus, you get to taste and learn about champagnes made by women. Luckily for those of us who don't live in Paris, she also teaches champagne masterclasses that are available online to give women the tools and confidence to understand what champagne they prefer and how to get the best bang for the buck when they choose a bottle. Today, I'm super excited that Cynthia is giving us a private lesson. So first things first, I find it really hard to choose a bottle at the store. I stand there looking at the shelves and not going to lie, I've definitely picked one just because I like the look of the label. Kind of reminds me of the time years ago that I was stupid enough to enter an NFL elimination pool and knowing very little about football, I actually picked teams based on how good looking I thought the players were, which was not a winning strategy for a football pool and is also not a winning strategy for choosing champagne. But Cynthia says that 70% of champagne is actually purchased by women, which I found surprising. So it's important that we know how to pick a good bottle. But it's intimidating trying to make sense of all of the choices. It is, but it isn't. You can sip a glass of wine and appreciate it without knowing anything mm-hmm. about wine. Yes, and um, that's the good thing. <laughs> it's like a good book. It's like, yeah. um, for example, James Joyce. He was an erudite. Anyone can pick up one of his books and appreciate the story and the storytelling. Mm-hmm. But the, no, the more you know about the Catholic religion or about philosophy or literature, the more references you pick up in the book and the more you appreciate it, more depth. I like that analogy, but the question remains, how do I pick a good bottle of champagne then? The first question is, what's the definition of a good champagne? Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a champagne that you like. (laughs) So it ties into my question. That does seem like a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So the first thing to understand is what type of champagne you prefer. Do you prefer a champagne that has more Chardonnay in the blend? So that will have more uh, citrusy notes and it'll be zingy and tart and straight because Chardonnay adds um, that freshness and acidity to the blend. Um, Or do you like a blend that has more Pinot Noir and that adds more sort of red berry notes? And there's Pinot Meunier, which is very fruity, more yellow peach apricot type notes. Mm -hmm. So there's identifying what uh, flavors you like. Do you like something that's more zingy? Um, or I do. do you when I'm drinking white them? wine, I'm a I'm a, like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, so you know citrusy and. So there tart. you would you would look for something that's a, a blanc de blanc or a, a blend that has more um, Chardonnay in the blend. So if it's a hundred percent Chardonnay, it's a blanc de blanc. So you look for that on the label. If okay. it's a hundred percent red grapes, it's a blanc de noir. Those are a bit more difficult to find. So. You start with understanding your tastes and what you prefer. So there's the grape blend. There's the aging. Is it a vintage or a non-vintage? Um, how long has it spent aging? So the less time it's spent aging, the more fruity it'll be. The more time it spends aging, the more toasty, briochey, yeasty it'll be. So you need to understand that too. <laughs> okay? And you're probably wondering, uh, when I look at a bottle, how am I supposed to... Um, right. Are there, key, under- are there clues? Yeah. Are there clues uh, when I'm at the store? Or do you need to just ask for help? There are apps out there like uh, Vivino um, is probably the most famous. So you take a picture of the label and it usually... Um, brings you to more details about the bottle. Um, the best way too is to not go, not buy your champagne at a grocery store, but go to mm. um, a wine shop and ask. A good salesperson in a wine shop would be more than happy to help you find a champagne that suits your tastes. And mm-hmm. the other thing are medals and points. I'm not a big fan of the point system because it just reflects the taste of one person, whoever. Mm. Um, marked it. Medals, on the other hand, are usually a jury that blind taste. And so uh, usually if any type of wine gets a gold medal anywhere, it's usually a good sign. So you want to look for gold medal stickers uh, on the bottle. So now you've purchased a bottle, next order of business, opening it. If I had a, a euro for every time a woman told me this is the first time I've opened a champagne bottle by myself, <laughs> I could be uh, retired <laughs> on a deserted island somewhere enjoying <laughs> the sea and sun. So the, the process for making champagne produces six bars of pressure inside the bottle. Okay, that's three times the pressure of a car tire. So you want to be really wow. careful when you open it. Yeah. Okay? But it's, it's actually really easy once you know how to do it safely. The trick is to, you remove the foil, okay, the, the metal uh, yeah. wrapping yeah. around the, the cork. Then if you're right-handed like me, you put your, your left thumb on top of the cork and then you turn the cage, which is the metal uh, cage that is holding the cork. Turn the, uh, the cage, uh, there's a little handle. You turn it about five times towards yourself. You, some people leave the cage on once it's loose. I prefer taking it off, so I wriggle and jiggle it but I keep my thumb on the cork. Mm -hmm. And then the trick is to turn your bottle up 45 degrees. I'm right-handed, so I switch, put my right thumb on top of the cork, my left hand holding the base of the bottle, and I hold it at 45 degrees. 
And that's the trick is holding it at 45 degrees. And then you gently turn the cork towards you and the bottle away from you. And then you feel the pressure of the cork pushing against your thumb and you're, you're gripping it and you just remove it gently. And when you feel it just about to come out, you twist the cork 45 degree angle. And so it doesn't make a pop sound. It makes a, and some people call it the champagne sigh or the champagne kiss. Uh, It always pops when I take it out. So I'm doing it wrong. So the little tricks, the little trick is to, um, when you feel that cork just about to come out, you Tilt at 45 degree angles. And so it gently lets out the CO2. Okay. I need to practice. Well, it'd be a good excuse to buy a few bottles of champagne and <laughs> open them. <laughs> practice makes perfect, right? That's right. And then what is the right glassware for enjoying champagne? Because I always, um, you see people with the tall flutes, but you told me that there's actually other glassware that's maybe better for enjoying champagne. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, all, there's always been trends in the, the history of champagne, um, flutes, they allow you to appreciate the visual aspect of the bubbles, the little mini tornado mm-hmm. bubbles taking place in your glass. But if you look at the, um, the opening, it's very narrow. Right. So you can't get your nose in the glass to appreciate the aromas and appreciating the flavors and aromas uh, kind of go together. So the champagne flute is great for watching the bubbles, except you can't smell the aromas. And so the opposite is true for the coupe, uh, the round glasses. And women mm. love those, but they are the worst for appreciating. <laughs> because all the bu- it lets too much, of, too much of the bubbles out? You lose yeah. your bubbles yeah. and you lose the aromas. Huh. Okay? Uh, some women tell me, well, it doesn't matter because I drink it so fast. <laughs> uh, but champagne is a wine and people f- tend to forget that it's a wine and you need to take the time to appreciate it and smell it and taste it and look at it. And so the best for that is a white wine glass. And so when you go to a fancy Michelin restaurant uh, or to visit a champagne house or a small producer, um, they will usually serve the champagne in a white wine glass. You lose a little bit on the bubbles, but you get to appreciate the aromas and flavors so much more. And that's, if you want to do homework, I would recommend pouring the same champagne in different shaped glasses. And experiencing it yourself to see what happens to your bubbles and the aromas um, when you uh, try drink it in different glasses. The best type of flute are are called tulip flutes. Okay, they're not straight up and down. Mm-hmm. They they're like a bulb. They look like a mm-hmm. tulip bulb, and yep. that gives the wine more room to to breathe and release the 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 aromas. Cynthia specializes in sparkling wine, and her favorite is no surprise bubbly from the Champagne region of France. But there are lots of varieties of sparkling wine made around the world. And I asked Cynthia, other than the location they're made, what sets them apart? First of all, there's the place where, uh, where the wine comes from. And then there's um, the, uh, the method used to make the sparkling wine. So there's about six different methods. So for Champagne, the second fermentation takes place in the bottle. Um, and that's the case for Cava, Champagne, Crémant, uh, Francia Corta. It's just so many sparkling wines that are made using the second fermentation in the bottle. And then mm-hmm. there's another method, which the second fermentation takes place in a tank. And that's the case for Prosecco. Okay? And when you use the 
method second fermentation in the bottle, usually it needs to spend a certain amount of time aging in the bottle in contact with the the yeast. That's what gives it a lot of toasty notes. Mm -hmm. So for a a crémant, the minimum amount of time required is nine months. For a champagne, a non-vintage champagne, the minimum is 15 months. For a vintage champagne, it's three years. Mm. So the longer it spends in contact with the yeast, um, the more complex aromas and flavors you get. When it's the tank method is used, um, it only spends about 10 days in contact with the yeast. And so it's going to be a lot fruitier and less yeasty, toasty, bready. And then you have the grape varieties. So in Champagne, there are seven grape varieties permitted. Um, the three most well-known are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier. In other wine regions in France, um, it's different grape varieties. And so if you're in Alsace, um, there might be more Pinot, Noir, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris. Uh, if you're in the Loire, um, for the Vouvray, it'll be Chenin Blanc. So the grape varieties determine the type of fruitiness you'll get uh, from them and the sort of the aroma and taste profile. For Prosecco, it's Italy. Mm -hmm. It's the tank method. And the grape variety is Glera. And it's a very Mm -hmm. aromatic grape. Okay, So these methods and where they're, they're made also affects the price. The champagne method or traditional method, second fermentation in the bottle, um, the grapes have to be hand-picked. So that um, involves manual labor yeah. and more time, so more money. Uh, for Prosecco, it's machines that go in and pick the grapes. I guess that explains why you can get a tasty glass of Prosecco without breaking the bank. Another fascinating thing Cynthia shared is where you are and who you're with when you drink a wine actually affects how it tastes. When you are in a crowded uh, trade fair that's really noisy and people bumping into you and it's hot and you taste uh, a wine, you don't experience it the same way as if mm. you're as when you're sitting beside a beach with a view of the ocean with uh, your bestie or your loved one. So wine, it appeals to your senses. So where you're drinking and how your senses are being affected will affect how you appreciate the wine. There's actually scientific studies that have been done to show that um, when you're in an environment where there's the colors blue and green, your senses are more receptive. Hmm. So interesting. And I'm so sure the ocean it, actually does make wine taste better. Yes. Sipping, <laughs> sipping wine by the ocean, it's yeah. a real scientific fact. Another key takeaway from my conversation with Cynthia, despite what you may have always been told, champagne is absolutely not only for big celebrations and special occasions. You say you don't have to wait for a big celebratory moment to enjoy champagne. This can really be an everyday well, maybe not every day, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I pop a vote. These days it might be every day, but. Yeah. Well, there's a famous um, quote from a character in a movie called Old Acquaintance. And the character is played by Betty Davis. She says, there comes a time in every woman's life when the only thing that can help is a glass of champagne. <laughs> So it's not actually. I think I've reached that. I think a lot of women reached that point this year. (laughs) So I'm, uh, I I'm known. Hey, I I hate vacuuming, so I'm known to pop a bottle open uh, when I 
finally get around to vacuuming. To celebrate that you vacuumed. (laughs) But, um, and I drink it as a wine with food. Okay, so what foods pair well with champagne then, you might be wondering? It really depends on what type of champagne you're drinking. So a Blanc de Blanc, for example, has more Chardonnay and citrusy notes uh, in it. And so just imagine foods that you would add a squeeze of lemon on. Mm. Okay, so anything that's fish, seafood, um, goes really well with a Blanc de Blanc. If you have a Blanc de Noir or a blend with more Pinot in it, it has more red berry flavors, so it's going to pair better with meats. Like you could have a whole Thanksgiving or Christmas meal with different styles of champagne. The, the key is for your appetizers, your main and cheese, you want to stay dry champagne. And okay. it's only with your dessert that you would want to have a sweet champagne. So just how far back does the connection between women and champagne go? 18th century, they were still trying to figure out how to make it bubble just the right amount. So they Mm -hmm. didn't know how much sugar, the bottles weren't thick enough. And so it was only the rich and famous who could afford to drink champagne. And it was the women who were like, ooh, I like this. And (laughs) So uh, women have been drawn to champagne since the beginning of time. (laughs) That's exact. And that's my point is that... Uh, they were champagne ambassadors. And mm-hmm. so er- anyone who came to visit Versailles was introduced to champagne, ordered it and brought it back to their countries. The 19th century, you had industrialization. And that's where there was a big boom in the production of champagne. And there were some very famous widows. You had Veuve Clicquot, who invented the riddling table to speed up the process of getting rid of the, the dead yeast in the bottle. You had Madame Pommery, who was the first to start making and selling dry champagne. So up until the 19th century, champagne was more of a dessert wine. It was mm. sweet. So in, a, in the Brut Champagne today, which is considered dry, you have about 12, between 6 and 12 grams of sugar. Back in the 19th century, it was more like 100 to 200 grams wow. of sugar. During World War I and World War II, all the men in France were, had to enlist and fight. So it was the women who were left behind to run the show and keep the champagne uh, ships afloat. And then in the 20th, uh, 21st century, um, there's more and more women uh, paving the way and leading champagne houses uh, or um, small grower champagne, where they're Mm -hmm. actually in the vineyards growing grapes and making champagne. We're somewhat limited in terms of what we have access to buy in the U.S., but there are increasingly more options available now thanks to grower champagne delivery clubs. In the States, you only mostly have access to big champagne houses. It's always the same champagnes that you'll see in the wine shops. Um, The big champagne houses uh, rarely grow the grapes themselves. So they buy most of their grapes from small growers Mm -hmm. and they turn it into champagne. Whereas there's another category of producers called grower champagne. And they grow the grapes and make the champagne from their grapes. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it is so affordable in France. One of my favorite uh, champagnes, it's almost as cheap as water. But, um, it's your vacuuming champagne? <laughs> yes. Uh, it only costs 16 euros a bottle. Um, Um, and it's made by a woman, of course, and it's served at the restaurant of the National Assembly. It's won tons Mm -hmm. of medals. Okay. But the problem is, um, 95% of the champagne exported to the States is from the big houses because they can afford 
the distribution network and all the marketing and and so on. The mm-hmm. small growers, there's a language issue, um, and then there's the three-tier system in the States where, you know, you need to find an importer, a distributor, and then yeah. retailers and so on. In in the States, there's more and more um, grower uh, sort of champagne clubs popping up that specialize mm. in grower champagne. There's three that I can mention off the top of my head. One is called Fat Cork. Uh, another one is Club Bubbly, and that's owned and managed by a woman. And oh, cool. there's a Champagne Camp. And so okay. those three... I'll have to check um, those out. Yeah. And and you can always go to your wine shop and say, do you have any grower champagne? So we all have our homework. We need to see what grower champagne is available in our area, buy a bottle, practice opening it properly, get the right glassware, and enjoy. You can find more information on everything we've covered today, as well as details about Cynthia's courses, webinars, and a list of champagnes she recommends on her website delectable.com. I've linked the website from the show notes for this episode. Cheers. If you enjoyed today's episode, please visit sevenplatespinning.com and subscribe to continue listening and consider leaving a rating or a review on whatever platform you access the podcast. I so appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. 